So how do you achieve financial freedom, gain wealth, and live life on your terms? That is the question, and here is the answer. I'm A.G. Osborne. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. Today, we have a very special guest I'm excited to bring in. As you know, at Cash Flow to Freedom, we love entrepreneurship, investing, and in the real estate world, we do believe that it is an essential key to wealth, income, and freedom that should be a part of everyone's playbook. And today, Lucas is going to come on and he's going to give us a great insight and look into the world of multifamily and how you scale a real estate business. I'm so excited. As a lot of you know, we love multifamily and uh, it's it's such a great asset class. So without me keep going on about it, let's bring Lucas in. Lucas, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? Thanks for the invite. Doing good. Thanks for coming on. Um, I, yeah. I'm excited to you know, really dive into all your knowledge and learn more about multifamily, the syndication, and, and, you know, you've done a really good job at scaling your business. And it's one of the things that, you know, you have kind of that great story where it's like, yeah, I started out buying smaller and went big and people love to see that arc, right? That pathway of investing. Do you always know you were going to be in real estate? No, actually, <laughs> that's a really good, really good uh, segue into how to start it. Actually, don't judge me too much. But before all this, I actually worked in politics for a really long time. I worked for like a member of Congress. I know, I know, right? <laughs> don't judge me too much. But I, I worked in politics for a while. And, and honestly, I loved the work I did, but the environment that I did it in was so toxic and so hard. And I always had this feeling in the back of my mind, like if I'm doing my job as a staffer to a politician, my job is to put myself out of work almost like <laughs> mostly because I was advocating for smaller government or, or just the idea behind reducing unnecessary spending, yet I was unnecessary spending. So it was this double-edged sword and I had this identity complex. And so I always figured, you know, I want to start my own business. I want to be a part of something that uh, helps people and helps people grow and, and obviously provides a good income for myself. And then boom, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was right there to get me started. Where are you at this time in your life? Like, are you in Washington where are you at? No, I did live in DC for a while and that's where I worked on Capitol Hill. But now I am back home in Colorado. That's where I was born. That's where I was raised, where my family's at. So this is home. Okay. Always from Colorado. That's awesome. And where'd you go to school? I'm assuming you went to school to learn about uh, or go into politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the most part, I went to school initially in college in Kansas and then went on to a master's degree Kansas. in DC. Atchison, Kansas. Have you ever heard of it? I haven't. My wife's from Kansas. I'm not, but <laughs> about 45 hour or 45 minutes north of Kansas City. So right. small little podunk town, small Catholic college, but um, it was awesome. I loved it. Nice. And it, you studied uh, political science. Political science, and then uh, you know did a couple other small things, and then went on for a master's degree, and that was a whole nother story, but totally a waste. <laughs> Not using that at all, but, uh, you know, it taught me some good things too. Yeah. Schooling is interesting. I, I will save that for a subject for another day. Let's talk about real estate now because yeah. we open up that can of worm. We may never go back. So yeah. did you start investing in real estate in Denver or were you investing out of state? I've been talking to a lot of people lately that's, that are doing out of state investing. Well, I didn't start out out of state. That's what I'm doing now, but I started in state. And so the 
<laughs> impetus for this was that oh, we were in DC. My wife and I were married. That's why we uh, we were in DC. We started thinking, oh, we got to get a condo. We got to flip it or we got to live in it. And you know, if we move away, it'll be a rental. Well, we started looking at prices and they were just insane there and insane to what we thought. And so we said, okay, well, let's just put that on hold for a little bit. Meanwhile, we found out we were pregnant with our first child and that changed everything. And so DC has a very expensive cost of living. And so we said, you know what, let's just move home to Colorado where it's cheaper. Everything is inexpensive and we'll be good. Turns out that seven, eight years that I spent away from Colorado, it got really expensive. (laughs) So what we thought was cheap was not. And so that's how we got into our first property, which was a house hack. And uh, that was more out of necessity than anything. Beautiful. The the good old fashioned house hack. I I love it. Uh, So did you duplex it or did you uh, get a house and rent a room or how'd you go about it? Yeah. So (laughs) we took the Brandon Turner advice back when he was like just coining the term, right? And uh, Mm -hmm. thought, oh, that's cool. So we got a house hack and uh, uh, it was a duplex. It was an up-down duplex and it was brick construction. It was two bedrooms, one bathroom each side or each level. And it was awesome. That's how we got started. So where were you working at the time. So (laughs) you're going to hate me even more. I was actually a lobbyist at the time. Um, So I quit my political job and moved into lobbying. So I just like to remember everybody, he, he, he repented of his sins and he went into real estate. So please keep listening to our podcast people. (laughs) (laughs) Before you judge me too much, I was actually a lobbyist for like large multifamily owners and developers and on the landlord side. Now everybody on the podcast loves you. (laughs) I was fighting our fight. So give me a break. But yeah, it was, that was an interesting time. Landlord tenant law is, is a tough animal and uh, we see it every day. So then you jumped to the other side of the table and said, listen, yeah. I'm tired of being in Washington, tired of lobbying for all these guys. I want to do this and have somebody else lobby for me. Yeah. That, I mean, that's almost exactly right. Like mainly I found at that time, I was also doing other investing. I was flipping houses and had small rentals and was even dabbling in private lending. Uh, but you know, it was always like this business, but then I looked at what my clients were doing or what the people I was working for were doing. And it just seemed so much better to me. It seemed like they were doing it at scale. They loved what they were doing. It was so much more professional than, you know, the mom and pop flips that I was doing. And so that was just really what I wanted to do. And so I started talking to them about it. I started asking them how they got started, what they could do. And the resounding thing was find a mentor and just go for it. I love that you just said that because that's something we really beat into people at Cashflow to Freedom. My co-host who's here when we don't do interviews, we always talk about a mentor. How did you go about finding that mentor? Like, you know, did you start calling around? Did you already have somebody in mind? Yeah. I I mean, I've had a lot of mentors, right? Just like you have, just like everyone, whether you acknowledge them as mentors or not is another thing. So and whether the they first were good mentor or not is another thing. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's a really good point. The first mentor I had, you know, he was the one that initially sparked that. He was a young guy just like me um, at the time. I'm a little older now, but he was a young guy and he was syndicating these large multifamily properties. And he was just maybe a couple years older than me when I met him. And so I just asked him like, how on earth are you doing this? I thought this was for like older, wealthier, like, you know, baby boomers. 
And so he kind of just sparked that, well, you can take other people's money, pool it together and buy something. You don't have to have all that money together. So uh, he was really the first mentor I had. And that's where our relationship really ended. Like that was all he did for me, which was great. And from there, I just started researching more and more and found a bunch of people that offered paid coaching and kind of went down that avenue and and say what you will about that. Um, I tend to be a proponent of paying for someone's time, but uh, other people don't. And uh, I'm, I firmly believe you can do it on your own. It's just going to take you a very long time to get there. So I, I wanted to fast track it. And so I hired a mentor, I hired a coach, and he taught me everything that he knows. And, and from there, it's history. I love it. What was your first property besides the house hack that you weren't living in? The first multifamily property or like the next flip? The next. Or... I, I want to know the next property. Okay. The very next property was a one bedroom, one bathroom condo in a 55 and older community that uh, here in Denver that we decided to buy, fix and flip. And we bought it from, they were in pre-foreclosure, I guess you could say. They were moving out of town and they were they didn't have a lot of money. So we found it through uh, an agent. Actually, we met on Bigger Pockets, which was cool. And we were able to close on it, renovated it, flipped it, and made some money. That's awesome. And did you use that money to put your next one? Yeah. So the so were next you still one, working? Were you still working when you went down yeah. this road? Okay. Okay. I was. I was still working full time. And actually, I made a terrible mistake. And I actually decided that I was going to do the work myself. <laughs> and I know you hear that all the time of like, don't do the work yourself. You know, your time is so valuable. It's one thing to say that it's another thing to actually like, okay, I'm going to physically hand over money that I'm still trying to scrimp and save for yes. to someone else that, so that they're going to do the work. Do. That's a hard thing. And nobody really talks about that. But I made the mistake. It was a mistake. Um, it took me longer. It took me much longer. It was more costly because I ended up making mistakes that I had to fix or pay someone to fix. But eventually we got it done, made a little bit of money, probably like 20, 20, 30 grand, somewhere around there. And yeah, threw it into the next deal, which was a two, two bedroom townhome or something, two bedroom, one bathroom townhome, somewhere like that. Uh, and we did another flip and that one was really good too. And I don't know if you want to talk about that one too, but um, then we get to a, the fun condo? one. Yeah. So I really like the condo um, model for flipping. Uh, a lot of people really don't. And yeah, I've had some really like bad experiences. You don't have to replace a roof. You don't have to, in, in general, you don't have to replace windows. Uh, your exterior, your CapEx, your major CapEx stuff is usually covered by an HOA. Uh, but it comes with downsides too, which is mainly the HOA. That makes <laughs> they sense. are hard to deal with. Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, your next one, then was this uh, syndication or were you still just going on your own? The next flip? The big one. Is the fun one you said. The fun one. No, this was a flip. So okay. this was back. Let's go back to that other condo community. That The second one was a different condo community. The third one was back in the old uh, 55 and older community. And this was and my hold big... Hold on a sec to set the stage here. You're putting your own money in, correct? I want to make sure I get this yep. right. So it's just you and your wife putting money in. You're going in, working on it, which you shouldn't be. And then you're relisting the house, selling it, pocketing the difference. Okay. Up until that point, that's that's correct. On this last one, we took private investor money, uh, about 25 grand, and for just for repairs. We bought it through on a hard money loan. We used contracted help we found on Craigslist. And all of that was just kind of this 
looming disaster because we bought in a 55 and older community, like I was saying, we bought in a two bedroom, two bathroom, and we ended up losing $50,000 on that deal. Oh, how'd you end yeah. up losing $50,000? Like, uh, walk me through. Would you just too much capital into it? It was a multitude of things. So for one, we misread our ARV. We used the wrong comps, basically. Um, what? So this 55 and older community is kind of unique in that it had two or three different two-bedroom, two-bathroom layouts and in multiple different buildings. And so we're basically using ARV and comps or comps from a different building to determine our ARV and what we could pay for it in this building, which what ended up being the nail in the coffin was we bought in a 55 and older community on the second floor with no elevator in it. And that ended up just killing our buyer pool. How in the world did they have, didn't have an elevator in there? That doesn't make this property. That, <laughs> they would have built that without an elevator. Well, and it was on a golf course. It was a beautiful property. And we, we thought, oh, it's on the second floor. You're not ha- going to have to deal with like neighbors above you. Like, yeah, yeah. Old people are going to love that. And we figured, uh, you know, people are, who are 55, they don't need elevators. Like they're yeah. younger, you know, 55 isn't that old. But they're and, thinking about um, the future. Bingo. And even though they are selling, if we pulled out all those two bedroom, two bathroom comps with elevators, our ARV was way overboard. And so that plus contractor meltdowns, plus, you know, like a little mini recession within that community. Um, there was just a whole bunch of okay, so condos just like how'd, ours. How'd you tell your investors? How'd that go? Uh, well, it was just, it was just one investor okay. and she knew it was going down uh, because we were in constant contact, right? Like I, w- I would never leave someone in the dark. So we let her know like, Hey, it's not going so well. We're going to be a little bit over budget because our contractor, you know, made some mistakes and we had to pay for them, blah, blah, blah. But it should sell. We should be able to recoup some money. Then it sat on the market for like four months, probably four or five months in Denver, which is like an incredibly hot market even back then. Um, so that was that was a mistake. But ended up losing about $25,000 of her money, which of course we had to, you know, put down and repay her because we weren't going to have that happen. I I didn't want to lose investor money. So made her whole. And then we lost our 25 grand. So we were out 50 grand total when it was all said and done. What'd your wife think of that? (laughs) Uh, My wife at home with a three-year-old and a just turned two-year-old. She wasn't too happy, but she understood too. Yeah. I mean, hey, that, I wasn't operating in a vacuum without talking to her. We we were we were a team. And so it was tough times for both of us. But at the end of the day, we both agreed, hey, we don't like flipping. You know, so this, because of re- this experience, you were like flipping. This, not your thing. this experience was probably 80% of it. And the other 20% was just like, we don't like the idea, the anxiety of flips. Um, we don't handle that very well. It's, it's very um, dependent on other things, like other variables that we don't like. We like controlling stuff. And so because of that, we're willing to take a haircut on you know profit because it's a great profit business. But it's a great profit business when you do things right and you have another deal lined up which enter in multifamily that satisfied our needs for passive income that we originally started real estate for um, with a good little mixture of professional business at, you know, atmosphere and uh, infusions of capital like flipping too. Okay. So from this loss, did you say, that's it? We're going straight into multifamily? Kind of. Yeah. We, 
we took a little bit of time off, probably about a couple months, just to kind of reevaluate, lick our wounds, and uh, kind of figure out how we how we can never make this mistake again, like ever. And we basically determined that we knew when we were buying this that there was this gut feeling that we're we're kind of making some sort of mistake. We didn't know exactly what it was, uh, but we had that feeling. So we said we'll never do that again. And so I said, well. We love multifamily. We love apartments. We love the idea behind this. Uh, here's how we can scale into that in through syndications. And so that was like close to three years ago at this point and that we made that decision and I haven't looked back since. Let's go to your first syndication deal. I think a lot of people are very overwhelmed by what do I tell people and how do I set this up? And did you get the deal then set it up? Or did you try to set up your investors and everybody before you got the, how, just how did you even approach it? Yeah. So syndications are, they're tough, not because they're so complicated. People can't understand them. It's just, it just seems a lot more daunting than a lot of people want to take on. And the truth is it's not complicated in a, it's not more complicated than anyone can figure out, right? Like flipping a house is complicated in its own way. Buying a duplex is in its own way. And so is syndication. It's just different problems. And so the more you research, the more you educate yourself, the more you realize what you can and can't do. And so I got started simply by talking to people, like I was telling you, and saying, hey, if I found some sort of nice real estate investing opportunity where I could get you somewhere around 10% cash on cash return, would you be interested in putting a little bit of money in? And that's just as simple as that conversation was. That's how I got started just talking to investors or potential investors. And I didn't have like all the education. I didn't know exactly how we would you know, fund things, what kind of debt product we would have, what kind of offering we would offer. None of that was figured out. It was just a simple conversation of, hey, would you be willing to trust me with a little bit of money? And that's how we got started. Walk me through your first deal. Yeah. So the first deal was, um, and I have to caveat this by saying, uh, this was not my deal that I sourced and found myself. This was an introduction from a partner to another partner saying, Hey, well, you guys have complementary skill sets. I think you should work together. He had a deal with, it needed a capital infusion. I had capital plus some investors and it was just a good mixture from the start. And so and he had the experience, frankly. He was really dialed in with his systems. And I felt very comfortable uh, trusting his systems and his track record to put my own money in there, but also my investor money in. And that's how we got started. So it was 384 units in Memphis, Tennessee. And it was just your classic B-class value add deal where you go in, spend about five grand a unit, turn them, renovate them, raise rents a little bit. and um, hopefully you execute your business plan and it works out well. And it did. It has so far. It's Of course, these are like five-year holds and that was three, two years ago. Um, so it's going well. What was your overall structure? I mean, are you, you the GP? Are they limited partners or are they just partners? Yeah. Do you have a waterfall? And kind of explain to our listeners too what all this means. So it was a typical syndication structure where you have your GPs and your LPs. Your GPs is the general partners, the LPs is the limited partners. The limited partners are the ones who invest money and with the expectation of a return at some point. Um, the general partners are the ones orchestrating the deal and putting everything together and doing complementary things. Now on a 384 unit 
property. That's a big property to take down. You have multiple GPs doing multiple different things. It's just like a company. You have different people doing different things. You don't have one person doing everything. And so um, I came in to raise capital. I came in to structure some due diligence items and make sure things were going the way they were supposed to be going. Um, I underwrote the deal. I made sure that their assumptions were correct and what I was assuming they were and just kind of helped out where I was needed. And that was really it. And so the structure is just a 70-30 equity split with an 8% preferred return. So what that means is just, if you think about a pie, 70% of that pie goes to the investors, 30 to the sponsors. The 8% preferred return is not, your return is not capped at 8%. Some people have that misconception. The preferred return just means that the first 8% that that property generates goes directly to the investor without us taking a share. Everything above that is split 70-30 in this case. Okay. So no waterfall, fairly straightforward. Yeah. So waterfalls are are a little complicated. And so what, and what I think you mean by waterfall is just like if we hit some sort of IRR hurdle or internal rate of return hurdle, we get more equity or we get more of a return. All of that is, is, I'm not knocking anybody that does that at all. Frankly, I'd like to do one myself, but it is very difficult to explain to an investor who might not be familiar with this at all. Um, syndication itself is hard to explain, yet then you add on top of that a waterfall. So we don't do that. It's, it's a little too complicated for me. Well, you this know, brings hey. up a good point. Let me ask you, where are you getting your investors? What is this a 501c and where are you getting your investors from? T talk to us a little bit about that. This is structured as a 506B, so we can take up to 35 non-accredited, sophisticated investors and an unlimited amount of accredited investors. So uh, my my personal investor pool comes from a lot of different things. Uh, I I host a couple different meetups here in Denver. One is multifamily related. One is just regular real estate investing related. Another one is just my past contacts, people I've worked with, people I've kept in touch with. Um, I continue to network like crazy. That's that's kind of my goal. And then um, I have a podcast. You're talking about where you find your investor stuff. And you talked about your meetups, your podcasts, and networking and those things. And that's where you're cultivating relationships to build that may be interested in investing monies. Now, you you did this first deal that we kind of talked about how the structure you got in and it did you need to put capital expenditures into this deal? Like what was the cost of the deal going in? What'd you put down and what needed to be done to that deal to make it a, a successful deal? You're asking some questions that my memory can't quite yeah, recall, okay. but yeah, um, you know, the debt product we put on this is what's called a bridge loan. And so okay. it typically uh, bridge loans are a little bit higher interest rate, uh, but, in, but they come with a lot of uh, other benefits. One of those is that they aren't necessarily um, as restrictive as a traditional financing product that might say it, they might allow a little bit lower occupancy of the property. So if you're below 90%, you typically don't qualify for uh, some of those other financing things. So we have a bridge loan on this product. I think the rate is 5.8%, 75 LTV loan to value. And it's a three-year term with up to two-year extensions. And they actually did interest only for the full three year, first three years. And so we aren't paying principal down, uh, but we are paying interest on that. And 25% uh, of 
you know, roughly 23 million roughly is what our purchase price was somewhere around there. Um, and then we had a little bit of unfunded capital expenditures like, um, you know, soft costs, acquisition fees, capital or uh, due diligence major. costs. You were ripping like down walls, nothing like that. Nope. It was a typical um, five to 6,000. I can't remember exactly five to $6,000 per unit renovation. And for people who are doing like single family flips like that, that probably blows your mind how you could possibly spend five grand a unit and get something finished or renovated. Uh, but when you're doing it at scale, you get economies of scale, you get labor that's a much cheaper. Um, it's, it's just a bigger scale. So you get, you know, you pay less. Okay. And now how many deals have you done since then? How many, how many apartments uh, or how many units do you got? I'm a partial owner in like just under 700 units and that's over three different properties. We're working on number four right now. Um, this COVID situation really yeah. you know, pushed it sideways, but working on number four right now. And do you, you're, are you still a lobbyist? No. Okay. <laughs> no. Thank goodness. All right. <laughs> I, I'm a citizen lobbyist. I like to say that. I just actually recorded right before this. I recorded a video about how there's a new bill out that's going to give like tenants free rent essentially until this is over, which could be disastrous. But I call myself a citizen lobbyist because I still do care about our industry. You know. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that. That's awesome. And now the the guy you did original one with is still your partner, correct? Yeah, we've actually gone on to do well, and I've got a couple partners, right? It's a general yeah, partnership. Yeah. So you have like, you know, four to seven people per deal. But yeah, he actually asset manages now professionally. He does professional third party asset management and for a lot of people, um, including us. That's awesome. So you've got a system in place now, all the right people. Now you're just looking for deals and to tackle them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's essentially it. We've got a really good source of capital. I feel confident being able to raise anywhere from 2 million up to probably 6 million comfortably. Of course, you bring on more people, you can raise more money, but that's now, the system. That's, that's the vintage we're looking for. And tell me about your properties. How, how did you define the criteria for your investment? When you were coming up with your investment philosophy and thesis, what, why did you pick the asset class? Not only you're in, but what is your target? Well, it really all depends on your individual style. But my individual style was I like um, a little bit older property, not super old. I don't want to have deal with really old properties like, you know, downtown stuff, 1904 builds. Uh, but I don't want brand new stuff either. There's no yield left on that brand new. There's no meat on the bone on the brand new stuff. So just like when you're fixing or buying a, you know, a fix and flip for for you to live in or or duplex or whatever. You want a nice product, you want it in a good location, and you want a little bit of meat on the bone that you can add value to. And it's the same thing when you scale up to 100 plus units. So our criteria generally is 100 plus units. We say 100 plus, but I really like, um, you know, 200 plus would be nice. Garden style apartment, pitched roofs, um, you know, in general, that's that's about it. But we want it in a good area. Uh, we want a lot of interior renovations, not a lot of exterior renovations, because tenants aren't going to pay you more in rent if their roof's not leaking. They just expect it to happen. So we like a lot of that renovation dollars to be spent on the inside. And we want it to be able to qualify for really good debt. It's a huge part of it, especially right now. Is there, in the markets you're looking at, do you have a criteria like minimum population demographics? How much does that go into the decision-making process to find deals? 
And then, and then I guess in, that's nine, right along with uh, uh, my question is, how are you finding deals and sourcing deals? The population growth and the job growth are critical. You got to have pe- you got to have people who want to live there. You got to have people who want to work there, and you want to have people who can afford to live there. Right? People love living in Denver and they want to move to Denver, but it's incredibly expensive. So that's holding a lot of people back. So that southeastern corridor, you know, Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida. North Florida, those are the areas that I kind of like to farm in and make sure that they're affordable to live in, but they still have good job prospects. But that being said, I'll have a huge caveat here. There's ways to make money in anywhere, right? Like you can live in a podunk town, like in the middle of nowhere and still be able to make money. It's just whether what you can swallow as an individual investor and what I can swallow and what my investor can swallow are two very different things. When you become a steward of other people's money, you really got to put your own criteria to the side and think what's best for everyone here. And for us, it's just that stable, really boring property that uh, is just going to generate cash flow. It's not sexy. It's not a home run deal every time. It's just going to spit out cash flow. And so the way we're finding these deals is really just through broker relationships. That's how it's always been done for you know the last couple decades. And so you know, when you get above 100 units, the amount of people that are willing to respond to a yellow letter or to some off-market solicitations, I guess, is really small. And the way it's still being done today is just through broker relationships. So tell me, somebody out there saying, listen, I've got some homes, right? I'm really looking to level up like you did, start syndicating and start getting into bigger deals. How do you go? A lot of people, I think that can be very daunting. You're talking about like condos, duplexes, fourplexes to 300 doors. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's a humongous leap for people to say, this is a $300,000 condo. And now we're talking about a $30 million building. First of all, I come from the belief that it's actually not that different, but how do you help people and how do you tell people, how do they get to that point to go to that next step? Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's not that much different. It's, it seems that a lot different. And I still remember feeling that way. Like this is incredibly overwhelming and I just can't do this. That being said, you have to understand that this is a team sport. You don't have to do every single thing yourself. And I promise you whatever anxiety or problem you feel, there's an answer to it. It is difficult. I don't want to paint a rosy picture of it. It's incredibly difficult. And it's, it's a lot more hands-on than like buying a single family house and just having someone move in and collect mailbox money. It's not that easy. If you want passive income, don't become a syndicator. Like I, my day was crushed today because, you know, this COVID situation, like nobody could see this coming, but that being said, it's incredibly rewarding and I love every part of it. And to scale up, all you really need is willpower. Like that's that's it, consistency and education. And you can learn everything on the internet. Like I put out literally everything I know for passive investors on my YouTube channel for free. Like there's tons of people out there that do the same thing. And so if you want to fast track it, my advice is to get a mentor. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to play favorites here, but there are some that are better than others. There's just like everything, but you could get a mentor or you learn it on your own. Just start by reading books. Like it's, it's not that hard. Anybody can do this, especially if I can do it. You know, it's funny. Cause I think that you're right about that. Like I like to say it, it, it's not easy, but also it, it's not that complicated. It just takes work like anything else, anything else. It, it, there's nothing else. There's nothing out there that's, that is hugely rewarding. That is easy, but 
it is nothing that most of the population can do. So bought a hundred single family homes. That's probably in my mind, way harder than buying an apartment building. Way harder. I would a hundred percent agree with that. In fact, I argue to the point, take out syndication, buying larger deals is easier than it Absolutely. is buying smaller deals. Um, most of the time, the information's better. Um, it's just, it's, it's all easier. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's why I said like my criteria is a hundred plus units, but, and I know there's some people out there that are like, ah, I'd love to own a hundred unit building. Like I, to me, that hundred unit building, I'm going to do the same exact amount of work as I did on a 384 unit building. It's the 384 unit building is way more stable than a hundred unit building as it is to a 20 unit building or a 10 unit building. If you can get over that mindset shift of like, I can do this and I have the ability then the sky's the limit. You're a hundred percent right. I don't want to take all your night, but if you could, if you were looking at, you know, yourself, let's say five, six years ago, um, and uh, thinking back on other people that are trying to find their way, particularly in the real estate world, this is a big world. Where should, where do you, where do you send people? Man, five years ago, I would love to have been doing this. <laughs> there were, there were so many good deals. And, and honestly, I feel like it, today's market, like literally right now as we're recording this is a really good time to get involved in this. Not because I think there's blood in the water and there's tons of deals, but this is a phenomenal time to educate yourself. Take note of what you're seeing around you because there will be deals that come out of this. Um, I don't know if they're going to be all multifamily deals. I don't know, you know, maybe self-storage, right? Like I, I know nothing about that. But that being said, like, the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. The second best time is right now. And so if five years ago, if I were to talk to myself, I would say like, save as much money as you physically can. Like don't do anything but save money, get your financial situation correct. Like I was lucky enough. I, I had a pretty good one, but I spent money. I sp still spend way too much money. I hate it. Just save as much money as you can, because it's so much easier to make money when you have money. And especially in syndication, like I have to pay someone this is a perfect example. So on this deal right now, I put down $50,000 hard money day one, earnest money deposit. Like we're, I'm not getting that back unless we close. For that, I'm getting a significant chunk of our general partnership for doing that. And I can't do that if I can't afford to lose that money. Now, if I don't have that money, it's not the end of the world, right? Like I can pay someone to do it, but I'm going to get a smaller chunk of that high when all it has to do is, is save a little bit of money. Like that's all you have to do and have confidence. My advice is just literally educate yourself, save as much money as you possibly can. I think house hacking was a good thing for me, but I got distracted by it. Honestly, um, I was like still changing out boilers. I was doing stuff like not worth my time. But again, like we talked about earlier, it's hard to make that call in the, in the meantime, but uh, saving money, educating yourself, and then finding people to mentor you. Podcasts are a phenomenal way to do that. Yeah, they really are. Which speaking of that, you do have your own podcast, correct? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. And then tell us before we end here, where people can find you, where can people get a hold of you, call you, you know, but start with the podcast. 
Yeah, the podcast is called Fear Free Passive Investing, and we focus on commercial real estate investing uh, for passive investors, those LPs that we were talking about. And so we go through everything from interviewing past newbie investors on how they like got started, how they gained confidence and all that, um, all the way up to like, I had a professional asset manager on the other day just talking about like how we can protect ourselves during this. So if you're interested in commercial real estate investing on the passive side, it's not for active investors, but on the passive side, you can check out fearfreepassive.com and you can definitely reach out to me there um, or just shoot me an email. You know, I'm really approachable. I love to help people because I think that's frankly what sets me apart from a lot of other people is I am relentless in helping other people. So it's awesome. I love that. Well, thank you so much for helping our audience coming on and telling us, you know, how you in a short time you know, got into some pretty big assets and, you know, you are going to, I'm sure very quickly have a lot more and see some pretty exceptional growth. You got a right mindset and we look forward to, you know, here later, having you back on and telling us about all the new deals you're doing um, and excited to see your success. Thanks, AJ. I just appreciate the opportunity to come on and share my story. Absolutely. And we will put the uh, your information in the show notes so people can uh, find you. And thanks again for coming on. Yep. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Cashflow to Freedom. Be sure to subscribe to us for more and feel free to check us out at cashflow with the number two freedom.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook. And also, if you could leave us a good review, that would really help us continue to build out our content and our community. Thank you so much.